Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Welcome to Our Shelves, a podcast where writers from the legendary feminist publishing house Virago talk about their cultural worlds. We'll be diving into these writers' bookshelves, record collections and recollections to discover what inspires them. I'm Lucy Scholes and my guest today is Audrey Osler. Welcome to Our Shells, Audrey. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's very exciting to be here. Thank you. So Audrey is Professor Emirata of Citizenship and Human Rights Education at the University of Leeds. She is widely known for her research on teachers' lives and careers, children's rights and racial justice, and has worked as an educator in many countries, predominantly in Europe, East Asia and North America. She has acted as an expert advisor for the Council of Europe, UNESCO and a range of national governments. Her books have been translated into many languages, including Japanese and Chinese. Her latest work, Where Are You From? No, Where Are You Really From? is published by Virago this autumn. So Audrey, I want to start by asking you a little bit about your new book. Uh, I wouldn't strictly describe it as a memoir, but it does tell a very personal story, a narrative of your family history that spans seven different generations, three centuries, and geographically speaking, much of the globe too. I wonder if you could begin by telling our listeners a little bit about why and then how you decided to set about tracking these ancestors down and telling their stories. Sure. Well, I think everyone is familiar with the question, where are you from? Mm. But people of colour today still are getting, all too often, I think, the follow-up question, no, where are you really from? So I wanted to explore my own history on my own terms and to answer this question for myself in relation to my family. Um, And at a personal level, there were a couple of things in my family history Uh, My maternal family originates in Madras in southern India. Um, Things in my family history that I I really wanted to explore, in particular, uh, two puzzles that I wanted to resolve and um, research. Um, The first story was that when my mother boarded the ship to come to uh, the UK from Singapore, Mm. In, in 1949, her father told her that they had a relative buried in St. Paul's Cathedral in London. And this seems such an unlikely thing. My brother <laughs> said, oh, they're all confused, you know. Yeah. Um, 
such an unlikely thing uh, that we would have such a connection, you know, given that the cathedral houses, um, famous and great names, you know, Christopher Wren, the, the architect, writer, mm. great poets and so on. It seemed un most unlikely, but it needed checking out. And ours um, was a modest family from Madras in southern India. So it almost seemed impossible that this could be true. But um, we eventually worked out who this might be. And it was Frederick Roberts, Earl of Kandahar, Pretoria and Waterford, who died in 1914. So my, my grandfather would have remembered this event of him dying because mm. he was at the state funeral. But it, it still seemed unlikely um, and um, we still couldn't make the link. So this was one mystery that I wanted to research and, and resolve. And then there was a second mystery, really, and um, that was that my family was said to own the Unitarian Church in Chennai, mm. that an ancestor had founded it. And, and like, I had no idea who this was and how we discovered and taken Unitarianism from Europe, you know, this progressive, rational, new way of looking at things in the 18th century and how he possibly um, introduced that into 18th and 19th, early 19th century India. So that was the second story that I wanted to uncover. It's sort of fascinating because you say you came from a very kind of modest family, but you have actually got this incredible, once you started looking into it, there are some incredible kind of historical events that your family were obviously sort of involved in, things that they did. I mean, were you how much of what you were coming across was a, a kind of great surprise to you and a great sort of excitement? I think everything passed my own mother's life, really, because um, I went to um, Chennai, I think it was 2018, shortly before uh, the pandemic, and I was hoping to go back. But I went there completely uh, unprepared, trying to... I, I was fortunate enough to be able to stay for a weekend on my way to Sri Lanka, but I knew nothing. I I didn't know what to expect in the city. All I knew was that, that my family had been Anglican. So I just went off to the oldest Anglican church in the city and started asking questions. But I really didn't know what I was doing. I had to spend a lot of time <laughs> doing a lot of research um, in archives and so on much later on. Yeah, I, I, it must have been a kind of strange. Was it? Is this the most sort of personal project you ever worked on? Um, probably, yes. Mm. I think yes, almost certainly. Uh, I've just finished doing the audio book, and when I was reading it out loud, I, in a way that I hadn't seen when I was just reading it to myself or checking my uh, scripts or whatever, mm. um, I realised that how much personal stuff there is in there. Um, yes, it, it, yeah. it is uh, quite personal. I think also one of the things I found really fascinating about it, and I think you know you, you make this point in it, that a lot of us um, maybe have an idea that the sort of Windrush generation, that influx of British uh, citizens from the British Empire in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, is sort of the time that large amounts of people of colour first arrived in the country. But as your um, your own research shows, this is not the case. I mean, you've got, you're tracing a family back way before that, that has these kind of lines that cross, crisscross across the British Empire, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, 
I was I was aware that the two earlier generations of my family, my mother and my grandparents, had been migrants, and I really thought it would be interesting to explore their their physical journeys. And mm. and I had to do this during lockdown when I was grounded. Really, I was at home, <laughs> uh, um, so I couldn't even leave my home, let alone travel the world. And I visited uh, Chennai in India. I visited Singapore. Um, as a child and as an adult, but I'd never been to Sarawak in East Malaysia, um, the places they'd lived. So um, finding out, and I'd really hoped to do this as well as part of the book, and, and I wasn't able to go there in the end. But um, I think it's really, really important in 21st century Britain and Europe, when there's so much intolerance within sections of society about migrants, I really wanted to explore what it meant to be a migrant and to and actually what I uncovered was that every single generation of my family back to the early uh, to the late 18th century had in fact um been a migrant of some sort. That's incredible really. One of the things that came out to me particularly in the book that I wanted to talk about a little bit was this push and pull of identification and exclusion that it seems that in every generation that you're writing about there's this sense of these uh, British citizens, these people who are, you know, they're told they're British citizens to a certain extent, but only on the terms that then, you know, white British citizens want them to be. So they come, and we, I think we are aware of that maybe with the Windrush generation, we've read stories about people coming um, to the UK and thinking that they're going to be welcomed, you know, with open arms and actually having the exact opposite circumstances. But this is going way back in your research. You'll feel, I feel like you're encountering this over and over again. And that must have been quite I don't know. I'd love to know a little bit about how that sort of, you know, the emotional um, sort of toll that takes on you learning about this and and having to explore these stories. Yes, it was an emotional. There were many, many emotional moments in in researching this book. Um, Definitely. Uh, The the first time I found a letter from my three times great grandfather was extremely moving. Um, He had written that letter I think in 1831, he'd sent it to London to people he didn't know. Um, Mm. He'd sent it with a copy, a second copy to London, because he wasn't convinced that they would uh, actually um, receive the first. He must have also kept the third copy himself, (laughs) because that's what people had to do in those days. Um, So the, the thing I wanted to get to grips with was why and how this empire influenced people's lives. And clearly in my family, um, they in every generation, they were, in, I think, probably from the early 19th century, they were encouraged to think of themselves as British. They were actually yeah. taught Britishness. Of, you know, we hear a lot about learning Britishness at school today. They were taught Britishness at school, that this was their life. I do recall my own uncle being able to recite the counties of England as they were in the 1930s. Wow. Uh, when I met him in the 1980s, and I, I, I thought, what is all this about, this education? So the other thing is, is that this is about empire, isn't it? it it's become a very... Mm contentious subject recently and some people just want a simple heroic story and they want to make that story 
far removed from serious historical research. And you have to think about why this is. And I guess it's because a lot of us have never, ever had the chance to really study this. So they're mm. easily swayed or people of all different uh, um, backgrounds are easily swayed as to what the empire was about. I mean, I studied history at school and at university, and yet I knew next to nothing about the British Empire. Um, and I've learned an awful lot from researching this book. Uh, but what I do understand from that initial training as a historian is that about any aspect of history, that it's multifaceted, um, that the original sources generally include propaganda and, and disinformation. So I think um yeah, I think that this was what I was thinking about and learning as I went along. And this applies to empire as much to any other aspect of history. So it's it's not surprising really that people were encouraged to think of themselves as being part of something uh, for the purposes of uh, um, ruling a country or, or uh, um, accessing its wealth or, or whatever. Um, and then they find the reality when they come face to face with it, that isn't quite the same as, as they expected, as indeed that, that Windrush generation did. But I think other generations earlier in, in uh, history, Anglo-Indians, my family were of mixed descent, and there were Anglo-Indians petitioning Parliament in the 19th century, demanding um, uh, rights to, to be respected um, and expecting Parliament to take them seriously. They, um, they weren't often successful, but they were turning up and making their, their pleas. So um, what I'm trying to do in the book, I think, is to look at empire through the lives of one family, as you said, across six, seven generations, and to think, well, this is my family history, so I've been super meticulous and as accurate as I can be, and I've tried to test the family stories against the established facts and then check out the established facts and, and where are they coming from. So I've had to go back to archives. I've hung around a lot in the British Library at Pancras. Um, and... Yes, this is a story of my ancestors. This is a story of people that include those I know and love, but to try and understand their motivations and their context, I've had to dig into other people's research. I remember wow. being asked, like, why do you think your mother was able to leave her family and come to uh, England in, in 1949? Was it just love or were, were there other pressures on her? And when I thought hard about it, I realised, well, yes, she just survived. She was living in Singapore. She'd come through a period of occupation. Um, yeah. She'd really suffered and many and seen suffering in, in World War Two, And so probably, um, as well as falling in love and making a new start, she probably felt that um, being in England would be a, a way of, putting the past behind her I'm guessing yeah no I can completely understand that and I think it's so fascinating listening to you talk about um 
you know, the, the uncovering of the personal stories, because I think what I felt reading this book particularly is that, you know, I'm, I'm very aware that over the last few years, there's been quite a lot of, or there's at least the beginning of quite a lot of work being done about um, historians, writers, you know, people are really trying to wrangle with the complexities and the cruelties of the British Empire mm. in quite a big um, way, you know, books like uh, Satlan Sanghera's Empire Land have been so important, which you reference mm. in, in the beginning of your book. Mm. Um, and they're opening up this conversation and that broader picture is so important, but but actually, when you drill it down into something like a single family like yours, and they're able to trace these narratives and see how on a very kind of um, detailed, you know, minor stage in terms of the, the, the complexities of these individual relationships, how it affects people's lives. I think personally, it would sort of it opens up a whole new way of that I can sort of experience it and understand this as well. Well, I really, really enjoyed reading Sangera's book, Empire Land. But the thing that hit mm. me about it was that it was mostly about men and their yeah. lives and in in my book by by taking it from a family perspective it wasn't easy to find out about women's lives uh but, um <laughs> i think i knew that everyone in my family would would see the story differently my mother or grandmother even my cousins or my brother today would see these things slightly differently but when you talk yeah. about understanding history through a family I think what I've got is a fresh take on empire because it's history from the grassroots. It's from family life. It's not a story yeah. of armies and battles, although the, I, I'm quite shocked at how much military stuff crops up in the book. But it's not, yeah. even, <laughs> it's not even about plunder and loot. Clearly all that were going on, but it's also about how people were negotiating, navigating these difficult things that they were, were facing, the solutions they found when life became too difficult in one place, what they had to do about it. Yeah, I think so. And also just, you know, the idea of, like you say about, you know, your mother making the choice to move somewhere because of love and how mm -hmm. that affects you and these sort of these very, you know, these major decisions in one's life, but they're not because some great um she hasn't been told to do this but you know that and then the shifts that happen after that and I found it um yeah I found it really moving I thought it eye-opening moving beautifully written so I um can only recommend it to our listeners uh to get hold of a copy of their own uh thank you for sharing so much about it um I'm gonna move into some of our main questions now if I may Audrey and ask you a little bit uh to begin with about what is currently on your bedside table what books are you reading at the moment or about to read well one that I've just finished is uh, The Night Tiger by Yangtze mm. Chu and I chose this book uh, was attracted to this book as, it, as it's also set in a period of history that I've been researching so it's set in 1930s Malaya modern day Malaysia mm. in an era I was researching for my own book uh, when Malaya was part of the British Empire but it goes to places that my book doesn't go to, like it goes to the dance halls of Ipo in um, northern Malaya. Um, it, it explores a relatively remote valley. And this, this, this um, novel is, is really attractive to me because it has two very engaging young characters. There's a very, mm. very impulsive um, Jin Lee who's a young woman who's having to take terrible risks to pay off her mother's debts. And then there's a, a boy, Ren, a much younger boy, I think, who works as a houseboy. And they're both caught up um, with what's going on 
around them, including um, Ren's um, employers, who was a doctor, uh, beliefs, superstitions and fears. And he's trying to find the doctor's lost finger. <laughs> and so, um, <laughs> he really hopes that if he can discover this finger, that the man's spirit can be at peace and not have to wander the earth for eternity. Now, I don't normally choose mag magical books, but this is a, a really uh, nice book because it, it combines the magical with the, um, uh, the, the modern and the very hard everyday lives of people who are working in a dressmaker's shop or um, mm. working as businessmen, lonely, um, it's it's intriguing. It's an intriguing insight into a lost world of the past. You make it sound absolutely fascinating. I'm interested a bit more broadly. You mentioned that obviously it's a uh, it sort of covers some of the uh, period that you were researching. How useful have you found, particularly I guess when you were writing, where are you from? Um, where are you really from? How how useful did you find novels and fiction when you were doing research or did you try to stick mostly to more factual evidence? I stuck to factual evidence and archives but I, I had to try and picture these places from the past um, mm. and you know 1930s Malaya I had to try and imagine 1930s Singapore the smells the the yeah. feelings so I, I tried to look for novels um but there are kind of gaps also in what people write about. Um, there's yes. the, this book that I found, um, Chu's book, The Night Tiger, I think there aren't many books like this written in English. Um, yeah. I don't know of other books about 1930s Malaya. So I didn't discover it actually until after I'd finished my writing but it's these kinds of things I was always looking for um, just to build up images in my head of, of where people were and, and how they were experiencing things. You know, the heat, the smells, the food. Yeah. I, I tried to uh, look to literature to find those kinds of things and then to look to archives to check out facts and, and, and propaganda. I even... Um, looked in the uh, British Library, there's something fabulous called Thacker's Directory. And it's like mm. old fashioned uh, Google Maps. So these are huge, <laughs> huge, big um, directories, like old fashioned telephone directories. And they try and list everybody in the European community in India any one year. Wow, yeah. um, and they give also advertisements about you know where you can get uh, your horse dealt with, or whatever people do with horses. Or I'm not expert in that area. Um, <laughs> or um, you know how you're going to travel from one place to another. So if you want to travel, let's say from Delhi and go um, to the far northwest of India. Um, it, it explains how you'll go about it. Where you'll uh, before trains, you know, you'll you'll take um, a bullet cart to this place, and then you should stop at um, this other place and ask the way. And eventually, um, you know, it explains detail by detail how you make your journey. Clearly, for European um, administrators or 
people, business people who needed to move around the country. It's really fascinating. How wonderful. That sort of level of detail is so useful because you can then really picture and sort of evokes the the details of the life, right, that you you might not be able to find on, on just reading some other uh, archival uh, sources. Wow, I love. I sort of want to go and check those out myself now. Next time in the British <laughs> Library, I'll have a look. Oh gosh. Um, what's and what's the second book that is on your bedside table, please? Yeah. So the second book is is, is rather a different book. I love uh, Elif Shafak, and I've read uh, loads of not loads. I've read a few of her novels, Three Daughters of Eve, mm. uh, Ten Minutes Thirty Eight Seconds in This Strange World. Uh, the Island of Missing Trees. But the book I chose is How to Stay Sane in an Age of Division. Uh, it was published mm. about three years ago. And um, what she's doing is focusing on the power of stories to bring us together. And uh, she discusses how listening to each other uh, can nurture democracy, empathy, and our faith in a kinder and wiser future. And and basically, I think um, it's a very generous and open-hearted book um, and it reveals some of um, Shafak's skills as a storyteller because she combines stories mm. with uh, political discussion and and her training as a political theorist um, and yeah it was the kind of book that I would be so proud if I'd written it's it's very slim <laughs> it's only isn't very elegant 90 page volume but she's looking at the anxieties of the world, and it's so easy for any of us to um, to uh, whinge, to complain, uh, to reflect on the overwhelming injustice or what feels like endless yeah. crises. But what she's trying to do is to talk about how stories and how listening to others can actually change that. And she has kind of practical um, ideas for how you deal with people who've feel increasingly left out and how you bring people together through uh, giving them space to tell their stories so I think that's Mm. very very moving and she was writing at the time uh, I think when George Floyd was murdered and she's cautioning against anger as she recognizes that people might feel very very angry now she doesn't reference Floyd as far as I can remember his murder but she's saying you know it's it's a new it's a useful short term emotion, but we need other emotions to deal with injustice. I think she quotes uh, Toni Morrison saying, "I get angry about things, then go on and work, you know, get things done." Mm. So I really really find it a very um, not just a moving book, but a, a kind of um, guide, if you like, on a, a reminder of how. We sit in echo chambers, but actually we need to practice a lot more uh, listening and telling of stories. She does that through telling stories of her own childhood, learning to write, Mm. um, all kinds of personal stories that she brings it alive with. How wonderful. It sounds very, uh, also sounds quite hopeful in a world which, like you say, is often Often I think people find themselves um, overwhelmed by the injustices and the sort of, you know, the horrors that are going on. And it's very hard to manage to carve out space in that to have some sort of uh, more sort of positive thought or, or hope toward the future. So 
this sounds like it could be a good read for many of us right now. Thank you. Um, and next up, I have asked you to recommend a recent film or podcast or TV show, something that you've been watching or reading that's made you think. And I think you've got a film for us, haven't you, this week? Yes, yes. Well, I'm lucky enough um, to live near a fabulous independent cinema and art centre, Phoenix in Leicester, mm-hmm. so I can really indulge my passion for international cinema. Um, and the film I've uh, chosen is uh, Paris Memories, um, Paris Revoir, uh, directed by uh, Alice Vanacourt. Uh, and um, it's a film, it's a story of what happens to a survivor of a fictional Paris cafe terror attack. Now, it's not a gory mm. film or a um, horrible film. I, I don't normally go and see films that have too much violence. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't either, so I'm with you on that. <laughs> um, so she's telling the story of one survivor, and it's quite a lot like the uh, Bataclan attacks in 2015 in Paris on bars and mm. restaurants. And she's looking at how one person, uh, a character, um, Mia, um, played by Virginie Irifa, survives. And um, Mia is a 40-something woman living in a rather comfortable middle-class existence with her partner. And um, she follows Mia's inner journey after she's caught up just by chance. And in, in an attack as she tries to piece together her memory. Um, so the title in French, uh, Paris Revoir, is um, to see Paris again. It's also how she uncovers a different side to the city she lives in after the events, um, how she sees mm. Paris through new eyes. So I really liked it because uh, one thing um, Mia does is eventually recall that she's been hiding during the attack with a Senegalese kitchen worker um, and um, she's, it's really, really important to her to try and track him down and see if he's still alive. So she's very driven and she goes looking in places in Paris that she wouldn't normally go to, to talking to people she wouldn't normally see mm-hmm. and on her motorbike. Um, and she uncovers um, a very different Paris um, probably a Paris that most filmgoers don't see. She goes and talks to migrants who are undocumented and that's why she's finding it so hard to find him because this particular survivor hasn't hung around to be looked after by the police. He's made a getaway because he's, mm. he hasn't got papers. It's not touristic in any way, but she reveals how the attack changes someone's life forever um, she sees her surroundings and her city in a new light. And um, it's very carefully constructed a moving film as as one survivor seeks to piece her, together her own memory and look at life differently. So I, I think it's a fabulous film. I'd recommend to anyone. I'm interested. Was it a film that you went to watch or went to see because you already had in mind that it would appeal to your sort of interests or did you just go and see it because it's on at your wonderful local cinema and then discovered it that way? I think, prob- well, I, I don't just go and see any old film at my local cinema, but... <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sure they have a very select, you know. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be polite about their, their what they're showing as well here. No, no. Um, I I went to see it 
because I try and uh, listen to films in French to keep my language skills going. But ah. I, it's one of the reasons. But I'm not very keen on on all these French films that that are very um, that are sponsored by a particular tourist board of a particular part of France. And um, this is a really I went to see this one because I thought the subject of terror, looking at this kind of issue is another issue that divides people and makes people angry. And I like the idea of exploring how you recover from something like this in a, an, on a personal level. And I think it's, I've not seen another film like it. And I've had the privilege, I think, to in my career to uh, work in a lot of post-conflict countries and so I've right. come across many people who've undergone different kinds of horrors in their lives and it was interesting to see how how the uh, director tried to deal with question of putting a memory together facing the past um, putting your life together after something Awful has happened. Arshel's be back in just a moment. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to Our Shelves. I'm Lisey Scholes, and I've just been talking to Audrey Osler about uh, a brilliant film called Paris Memories. Uh, next up then, Audrey, I'm going to ask you to tell me about a book that has made you think about feminism in a new way. This one was really difficult for me to, to chew. Yeah. <laughs> we do like to make our uh, our guests work hard for these final few questions, I must admit. Right. I chose Zami, A New Spelling of My Name by Audrey Lord. The reason I chose it, well, I was probably first drawn to this book when I came across it when I was living in Seattle. And I knew nothing about Audre Lorde. I had no idea who she might be. I probably picked it up because of her name. Um, and, um, you know, having the same name as myself. And um, yeah. probably Lorde is best known for her poems. But I've always been drawn to 
novels before poetry. So I'd, I'd never come across her poetry. And this is a very, very interesting book to me because it's presented as a novel in, uh, when people talk about it, but it's also a biography. And I've always been interested in life histories. And mm-hmm. I like the way Lord combines history and myth and stories and yeah. biography. And um, she doesn't really stick to any established form. And I really like that too. She documents her life as a young girl in Harlem in New York City. And then she goes on to show how she finds her way through life as a black lesbian. And mm. I love the way that she describes her childhood. And I think when I read this book, it made me realize that there are many different ways of being a feminist. And at that point, um, I think I'd been, I'd been working in the university. Um, and I think the British academic feminist scholars, education scholars, I should say, that I'd come across at that point, some of whom I'd probably found a bit exclusive. I, I kind I kind of realised that they didn't have the last word on feminism. <laughs> yeah, that's a lovely way of putting it. <laughs> Very polite. <laughs> and um, it's not that I hadn't read uh, really interesting work by feminist historians and so on. I had, but I, I think I'd been worn down a bit uh, by working in the university and some of the jobs I'd done before that uh, that made me feel... Um, but I had to work too hard to belong. And I think Audrey Lord, although her life and is, is and her identities are, are are very different in many ways from my own, I think she simply reminded me uh, that feminism and fun were not mutually exclusive. How wonderful, how wonderful. I also wonder from what you're talking about, um, what you've just said about the book, it strikes me that do you think there was an element of um, fun, I suppose actually fun is a perfect word, it's an element of sort of fun and excitement and sort of uh, an idea of breaking through boundaries in the way that the novel or this kind of strange book is structured like you say it's a mixture of kind of you know fiction mythology biography all these things that must I imagine have been quite an exciting book to encounter perhaps after reading more dry academic uh, feminist texts maybe absolutely and um, you know also she's very very honest Um, Mm. she she doesn't she doesn't seem to have so many pretensions about herself you know she enters an affair and and it it it's it's quite clear that she's not really sure how she should behave towards mm. a potential partner and i just think that's very very open um and i think i'm probably quite a private person actually and i like the way that she's opened herself up to her readers Mm-hmm. Can I just ask, this was published, I think, in 1982. When did you first read it, just out of interest? Were you quite young at the time or was it more recently? I, I think it was probably um, around the early 2000s. Like okay. when, I, Yeah, maybe when I was totally oppressed by working in a university. <laughs> <laughs> a dark period you don't want to talk about. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> 
let's move swiftly on in that case then. Uh, next up, could you tell me about a woman or a person of an unrepresented gender whom you particularly admire? And again, I know, I'm just going to say, I know this is a tricky question, making you choose just one person. Yeah, well, the, I think the notes I received said somebody you put on a pedestal and... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think... I, I, I try and avoid putting people on a pedestal. So I've chosen somebody who's no longer alive. Um, and I've chosen uh, Georgia O'Keeffe. And I admire her for her very, very independent spirit as an artist mm. and for her single-mindedness single as, as well as for her work. And when I was thinking about this podcast, I was really thinking... I don't want to focus on words, words, words. And mm. so looking at art seemed to be um, a, a different way of approaching things. Um, so I, I like Georgia O'Keeffe's life in that she, she more or less knew what she wanted to do from when she was uh, leaving high school. And she just went about it and did it her own way. Um, she, she was a trained artist, but she didn't fit into any um, conventional artist movement of her time. Um, and I think probably when she, she was probably not so well known in, in Britain at first, she was she became very quickly known in the United States, uh, her, um, where she was from. Um, mm. She was probably acknowledged, I think, by in the mid-1920s, when she was only in her 30s, she achieved success. But that didn't seem to kind of um, cause her to um, go off track or, you know, she stayed with her art and she did exactly uh, what she wanted to do. And she's probably um, best known for her radical depictions of, of flowers. Um, but her, her work is very bright and so on. And I also came across her when I was traveling. So I think when I'm traveling, I often right. come across people or have a chance to uh, look at art or experience places in, in a fresh way. So I came across her when I visited Santa Fe in New Mexico nearly 20 years ago. And I think it was probably the first time I'd ever come across a museum dedicated to a sole female artist. And I got to visit her studio. So it's that very personal opportunity that made me kind of delve into her work. And I love her work because it's bright and bold. Yeah, how wonderful. And I think you're right. It's actually quite rare to find an artist who has an entire museum de dedicated to them, let alone a female artist in that position, right? Yeah, I think so. I like what she said. She said, I have to create an equivalent for what I felt about what I was looking at not copy it she, she went her own way um even when she was in her 90s um and her eyesight was failing she worked with assistants and she just kept going um she said i can i can see i think she said i can see what i want to paint so she kind of worked with assistants to go on creating work right right through seven decades of her life it's incredible. I think, you, you know, something very important there as well, like you say, that she, there was no moment at which she sort of went off off the rails or off track. She just worked very sort of, you know, diligently and, and consistently at her artwork. And I, 
I mean, I'm, I think I fall into this trap myself sometimes, but I get very distracted sometimes by the tumultuous lives of certain writers or artists mm. and actually finding somebody who is dedicated to their craft and, and, and sort of pursues it uh, like that is, is, a, is a rare and quite wonderful sort of calm uh, sort of thing to, thing to encounter, let's say. Yeah, I think so. I think that's what makes us special. Mm, wonderful, making me want to go and look at um, some more of her work. Uh, and last up today, then, Audrey, if I can ask you, what is your golden apple? That is the Virago book that you would most regularly recommend to others. And again, I know, tricky question, but you've got a really good answer for me, I think. <laughs> I've, I've chosen Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. Um, and I definitely recommend Hurston's work uh, and that book. Uh, to anyone. Um, it was first published in 1937, I think, and was lost and largely forgotten. I think Kristen died yeah. uh, uh, um, poor and unrecognised. Um, but I, I think that also goes back in my own history because I think Virago published it in the 1980s. And I think that was a period when I first began enjoying so many Virago books. And Oh, yeah, so it's been beautifully republished by Virago quite recently. Um, it's a very poetic, lyrical novel. Um, and I can't imagine how she managed to do it in, I think it was seven weeks that she wrote it. Um, you know, to, to write such a lovely book in seven weeks. Um, it's a story of Janie who's searching for an ideal love. And she's first married off to an old man. Um, and he thinks he treats her well because he treats her better than his mule. Um, she then pretty low standards. <laughs> she then runs off and marries another man who treats her as an accessory in his ambitions um, to be a mayor and someone of importance in a black-run town. And eventually, she runs off with this uh, guy called Tea Cake, and everyone thinks that she's very foolish because by this time. Her second husband has died, and so she's quite a well-off widow, and they think that he's after her money. And um, what I like about it is that it, it's the way it begins. Um, she's telling a story uh, to her friend, um, and um, the love that she finds is like not necessarily the love that anyone anyone else would choose. It, it's very imperfect. They have fights, they have struggles, but um, this this individual that she finds um, wants to know and understand and take care of her in the way that she wants. Um, there's also a um, a very very interesting account. They they face um, a hurricane in the Everglades. Hmm. And um, it, it sounds very uh, lurid, but it's not. Her, her, her partner, Tea Cake, gets bitten by a dog and while trying to save her. And he contracts rabies and goes mad. And as, as at the end, she ends up having to shoot him in order to spare her own life and gets charged with m murder. Um, it sounds really lurid, but it's not. Um, and when I read those scenes about the hurricane, I couldn't help but think of the images of destruction uh, that I saw in Aceh in Indonesia after the tsunami. Um, right. Um, I went, 
the tsunami happened in 2004 and I went nine months later and you could see the destruction everywhere around you. Um, but the stories the survivors told me have stayed with me all these years. And when I reread um, Hurston, I was, I realized how she was able to capture people's horrors and, and, and uh, portray them in a, um, a powerful way. Um, and this is a story about a woman who may not make the choices in love that the reader might hope she might choose, but mm. she definitely finds what she's looking for and she faces life on her own terms. And I think that's, that's, that's a great, great book. How beautifully put. I think that is the perfect place to end this episode. Audrey, thank you so much for sharing such wonderful recommendations with us and talking about your book. It's been a real pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you very much for having me. I I felt very honoured to be asked. (laughs) That's wonderful. Thank you everyone else for listening to Our Shelves, which is brought to you by the team at Virago Press. Special thanks to today's guest, Audrey Osler, and tune in next time for more conversation about books, feminism and culture. (laughs) 